you again for the privilege that it is to be able to come into your presence, Lord, with our, our supplications. And Lord, we thank you that, that you have given us this mighty privilege, Lord, that, that we can stand before you and, and that we can stand before you not only on our behalf, but also on the behalf and behalf of those whom we love. Lord, on behalf of those whom you love. And so Lord, we thank you that, that we, can, we can pray for Caleb. We can pray that, that, that he would continue to stand firm despite chronic health issues. Lord, we thank you for the hope that he has in you, that, that he's, he, by your grace he's not allowing his circumstances to get the better of him because he knows his eternal circumstances. Lord, we, we pray that that would be this, the case also for Bill Milliken. That by your grace and for your glory, he would be able to see his circumstances in the light of the cross, of your shed blood. Lord, we pray that you continue to strengthen Jane as she cares for Bill. Lord, we, we thank you also that we can pray for, for Adelia and Peggy at, at Mill Creek. And Lord, as, as Adelia struggles with, with chronic pain and chronic anxiety, Lord, we pray that you would help her to cast her cares on you because you care for her. Lord, we also pray that you would comfort Carnes as he, as he cares for his, his aged wife of over 70 years. As her memory fades, Lord, we pray that, that, that supernaturally that you would enable her to, to remember the cross. We pray that you'd help Carnes to see her suffering in the light of the cross as well. Lord, we pray for Clarence and Lucille. We thank you for them and for the encouragement that they are even there at Fernbray, and we ask, Lord, that you would continue to strengthen them, continue to comfort them. We pray that's the same for Helen Higgins, as she's also no longer able to be out with us, Father, that, that she would know the comfort of the gospel. Lord, we want to pray that, that you would, would help us all to remember this, and Lord, that you would help us to stay our minds on you. Lord, you are faithful. You never change. And although the circumstances of our lives are often difficult, we thank you, Lord, that you are the sovereign of our circumstances. And Lord, that you are working out all things together for good for those who love you, for those who are called according to your purpose. And Lord, we thank you that that's true, not even here in comfortable Kelowna, but Lord, we know that that is also true even for those who are suffering despicable persecution. Lord, as, as Christians are, are imprisoned and tortured and even killed for the sake of the gospel. Lord, we pray that you would help them to know a peace that passes all understanding, that you would guard their hearts and their minds in Christ Jesus. Lord, that they would remain faithful Lord, we pray, too, that they would serve as, a, as an example for us, Lord, that, that we would be bold in our testimony of you, that we would count the cost. Because we know, Lord Jesus, that you and the surpassing worth of knowing you is immeasurably greater than any cost that this life would take from us. Because, Lord Jesus, you are the greatest treasure in the universe. So, Lord, I pray that, again, that you would fill our minds with these things. Lord, that you would enable us to do what we could never do on our own, that you would cause worship to arise in our, in our hearts for your glory and for the building of your church. For we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. And now ask Neil to come forward and to read our scripture reading. He'll be reading John chapter 11, verses 37 to John chapter 12, verse 11. It's found on page 799 in your pew Bible.
If you're able to this morning, I invite you to stand for the reading of the word. So please stand if you're able to. So reading John chapter 11, verse 38, through to John chapter 12, verse 11. Then Jesus, deeply moved again, came to the tomb. It was a cave and a stone lay against it. Jesus said, take away the stone. Martha, the sister of the dead man, said to him, Lord, by this time there will be an odour, for he has been dead four days. Jesus said to her, Did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? So they took away the stone, and Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but I said this on account of the people standing around, that they may believe that you sent me. When he had said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. The man who had died came out, his hands and feet bound with linen strips, and his face wrapped with a cloth. Jesus said to them, Unbind him and let him go. Many of the Jews, therefore, who had come with Mary and had seen what he did, believed in him. But some of them went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. So the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered the council and said, What are we to do? For this man performs many signs. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him, and the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. But one of them, Caiaphas, who was high priest that year, said to them, You know nothing at all, nor do you understand that it is better for you that one man should die for the people, not that the whole nation should perish. He did not say this of his own accord, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation, and not for the nation only, but also to gather into one the children of God who were scattered abroad. So from that day on, they made plans to put him to death. Jesus, therefore, no longer walked openly among the Jews, but went from there to the region near the wilderness, to a town called Ephraim, and there he stayed with the disciples. Now the Passover of the Jews was at hand, and many went up from the country to Jerusalem before the Passover to purify themselves. They were looking for Jesus and saying to one another as they stood in the temple, What do you think, that he will not come to the feast at all? Now the chief priests and the Pharisees had given orders that if anyone knew where he was, he should let them know so that they might arrest him. Six days before the Passover, Jesus therefore came to Bethany where Lazarus was, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. So they gave a dinner for him there. Martha served and Lazarus was one of those reclining with him at table. Mary therefore took a pound of expensive ointment made from pure nard and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair. The house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. But Judas Iscariot, one of his disciples, he who was about to betray him, said, why was this ointment not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? He said this not because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief, and having charged the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put into it. Jesus said, Leave her alone, so that she may keep it for the day of my burial. For the poor you always have with you, but you do not always have me. When the large crowd of the Jews learned that Jesus was there, they came not only on account of him, but also to see Lazarus, whom he had raised from the dead. So the chief priests made plans to put Lazarus to death as well, because on account of him, many of the Jews were going away and believing in Jesus. Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this beautiful passage of Scripture. Lord, where we see Father and Son glorified as having power over death itself. Lord Jesus, you are the resurrection and the life. 
And Lord, you promised something so much better than even temporal life. Lord, you grant those who believe in you eternal life with you. So Lord, I pray that you will help us in the power of your Holy Spirit as we consider this passage of Scripture together, that you would help us to consider the ramifications, Lord, of who you are. And Lord, that you'll help us to consider our response to you and that you would enable us to respond with the eyes of faith. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. We're picking up where we left off last week with somewhat of a, a cliffhanger, but of course this isn't your typical cliffhanger. Lazarus is dead, and it seems like the story has ended. And there's a question left hanging in the air. Could Jesus have kept this man from dying? Now, of course he could have. He'd done this repeatedly. But he didn't because he had something far more powerful that he wanted to do. And he didn't because he wanted to glorify God, both Father and Son. He didn't because he wanted to establish the faith of his, his disciples, but also that of Mary and Martha and Lazarus himself, not to mention the many Jews who believed in him, and not to mention the Christians who have believed in him from the time these events took place. But Jesus wanted to point to something infinitely more important, even more important than the event and the miracle that he was about to accomplish. John chapter 11 began with a word coming to Jesus from Mary and Martha that their brother Lazarus, Jesus' beloved friend, is ill. And Jesus responds by saying, this illness does not lead to death. It is for the glory of God so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. And then he stays two days longer where he was. It certainly wasn't the reaction that they expected from him. It didn't seem like the compassionate Jesus that they knew. They knew what he was like. They knew what he was capable of. After all, he'd healed complete strangers. So why didn't he come now to heal his friend? And as if this wasn't bad enough, paradoxically, Jesus died. Jesus had been 100% correct. He had omniscient knowledge. He knew everything. He'd never gotten anything wrong before, but then he says, this illness will not lead to death. And then Lazarus dies. He had said that the illness would not lead to death, or, and he also said that God would be glorified through it. And this morning, we're going to see just what Jesus meant. We're going to see how the responses to what Jesus did are diametrically opposed. We're going to see this, but seeing isn't always believing. It wasn't true then, and it's not true, to, and it's still true today. Seeing is not always believing. Some of the Jews who witnessed what Jesus did believed in him, but others rejected him. But even as astonishing as this is, even as Mary is showing her incredible act of devotion as she pours out the ointment on the feet of Jesus, there is another present, one of Jesus' own disciples who would betray him. So in verses 38 to 45, we're going to see obedience on the one hand contrasted with disobedience on the other in verses 46 to 57. And then in chapter 12, verses 1 to 3, we're going to see devotion contrasted with the rejection of verses 4 to 11. So we're going to see obedience and then disobedience, devotion and then rejection. 
Now, the people in this story did not understand what Jesus was doing because they didn't believe as they should. So there from the beginning of the story, the, the disciples didn't believe in Jesus' mission. They were worried that he was going to be killed by the Jews in Jerusalem. And they were right. Jesus would be killed just days after the events of John chapter 11, but they didn't understand that this was his ultimate mission, that Jesus came to die. They also didn't understand that Jesus had work to do before that event would take place, and that work involved Lazarus, and that Jesus would do this miracle in this way so that they would believe. Mary and Martha did believe on a level that, that Jesus was the Christ. Martha showed it with her confession, and Mary showed it with her tears. Mary's going to show it again as she falls at his feet in chapter 12. Mary and Martha did believe that Jesus could have kept their brother from dying, but they didn't understand why he hadn't spared Lazarus, and they didn't understand all that Jesus could do. The Jews that were present didn't understand either. They saw Jesus weeping and thought there was merely sadness over Lazarus' death. We read that, that Jesus wept. We talked about how this is the shortest verse in the Bible and about how it shows that, that God is not some distant, far-off God. That God is an empathetic God. That God is a passionate God. That God is, is, responds in time. Even as he is, is infinitely beyond his creation, God responds in time, in reality to the circumstances of life and death. But when we read there that Jesus wept, it's interesting that it's not the same word that is used to describe the weeping of Mary and the Jews. That word simply means to shed tears. D.A. Carson explains that the word that is used to describe the weeping of Jesus, although it also means to shed tears, it is usually in lament before some calamity. And so in a powerful display of emotion, Jesus weeps, but this is not the mere grief at the de of the death of a beloved friend. As we saw last week, Jesus is angry. He is angry at death itself. This is a powerful enemy, and it's an enemy that he will confront again in just a few days' time. And this is where we're going to begin with verse 38. First, we'll see obedience in verses 38 to 45. See that as Jesus approaches the tomb, he again feels the same violent emotion he was feeling in verse 33. We saw last week how our, our English translations don't accurately describe the emotion that Jesus is experiencing here. He was not merely deeply moved. The original Greek has a completely different sense, again from D.A. Carson. In extra-biblical literature, the word refers to the angry snorting of a horse, and reference to humans always refers to anger, outrage, and emotional indignation. Jesus is not merely sad. This is also true in the New Testament, where the word indicates indignation, and ironically, it's the same word that is used for the disciples' rebuke of Mary for quote-unquote wasting so much expensive ointment on Jesus' feet in Mark 14.5. Jesus is angry. Hear John Calvin's vivid depiction of our Lord's emotion. Christ does not approach the sepulcher as an idle spectator, but as a champion who prepare, prepares for a contest. And therefore, we need not wonder that he again groans for the violent tyranny of death, which he had to conquer, is placed before his eyes. And Herman Ritterboss says that Jesus strides to the tomb, not in the sovereign apathy of a great outsider, but as the one sent into the world by the Father as the advocate who has entered human flesh and blood. 
And the lifeless body of Lazarus has been buried in a cave with a large stone rolled in front of the entrance. Now Jesus commands that the stone be removed. And here Martha's faith wavers. She says, Lord, by this time there will be an odor for he's been dead for four days. She is revealing a failure to grasp the enormity or the implications of the one who is standing before her. Think about this. This is Jesus himself. This is God the Son saying, remove the stone. And she doubts. It's like Peter saying, no, Lord. Those words don't go together. But while John doesn't exactly record, doesn't record exactly the same statement, Jesus reminds Martha of what he had said earlier. The display of his glory, of the glory of God from verse 4 and the requirement of belief from verse, verses 25 and 26. Now think about what was going on in her heart. Even in the midst of, of the grief of having lost her brother, and even in the midst of not understanding why Jesus, her, her beloved friend, had failed to come and help them. She hadn't connected the dots, even as she said, that, even as she confessed that she believed that Jesus is the Christ. She didn't understand the, the connection between what Jesus had promised about future resurrection and what he was about to do. But nonetheless, obediently, they remove the stone. And then Jesus lifts up his eyes and says, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but I said this on account of the people standing around that they may believe that you had sent me. This was a conversation that Jesus had already had with his father. He didn't do this for, for his own benefit. He did this to reveal his relationship with the Father. He did this to reveal that he was the Christ, the sent one of God. And Martha had already testified in verse 22 of her belief that she knew that whatever Jesus asked of his Father, that the Father would give him, but her faith didn't go far enough. And what would happen next would powerfully prove to her and her sister and the disciples and some of the Jews gather around exactly who Jesus was so that they would respond with the obedience of faith. But there is one more person in this story who responded with obedience. In verse 43, Jesus cries with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. Now, I've got a pretty loud voice. In my, in my time as a phys ed teacher, I had to, to be able to make my voice heard all the way at the other end of the soccer field. So I learned to project. But as loud as I might be able to shout, I could never shout loud enough to wake the dead. But again, when Jesus says this loudly, he, he's not doing this that, so he doesn't speak loudly so that Lazarus can hear him. He's doing this for the benefit of those gathered around. A simple whisper would have sufficed. But we see that throughout the scriptures, Jesus did things in different ways. He never healed, or he, he often healed in different ways so that, that people wouldn't develop a system of this is how things are supposed to happen. He was always thinking about the needs of those who were before him and how he could best communicate who he was to them. He always had a specific message and he did things in a way so that they would understand in the power of the Spirit. Now, when it's, when it's translated, Lazarus come out, the, the original Greek actually has no verb. It literally says, hear, out. Now, when I heard words like that growing up, usually I was in big trouble. But this time, it's exactly the opposite. This time, when Jesus says these words, 
brainwaves spark, a once still heart begins to beat, once congealed blood begins to course through Lazarus's veins, decaying flesh takes on the pink hues of life, muscles that had been in rigor mortis begin to move, and Lazarus obediently stands up and comes forward, still bound in his grave clothes. And so Jesus simply says to them, unbind him and let him go. Now, Jesus had waited four days, and we talked about this last week, that the Jews believed that, that after somebody had died for three days, the spirit would, would hover around the body. And that so if, if somebody came back to life, for lack of a better word, within three days, it wasn't actually a resurrection, it was resuscitation, that the person wasn't really dead. So Jesus waited until there could be no doubt that Lazarus was really dead. The, the decay had started. And then with a word, Jesus brings him back to life. Now, humanly speaking, you would think that everybody would be convinced. This is not something that happens every day. You'd think that this would be enough of a testimony that everybody would say, you must be God. You have just raised somebody from the dead. You'd think that at least those who saw it happen would believe. You'd think that, that once word got around, once people saw Lazarus walking around after being dead for four days, that everybody would repent and turn to Jesus. But the polarization of response to Jesus is immediately evident because only many of those of the Jews who saw it happen believed in Jesus. Only many, not all. So now in verses 46 to 57, we'll see the disobedience. The disobedience. In verse 46, some of the Jews went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. They actually saw it happen, but they still rejected Jesus. This is the profound blindness of unbelief. No matter what a person sees, they will not turn to Jesus unless the Holy Spirit does a work in their hearts. No matter what somebody sees, no matter what you say to them, unless the Lord is at work, unless the Lord is at work, they will not believe. No evidence will suffice. And we saw that some of the Jews did respond in faith, but the others went immediately and ratted Jesus out to the Sanhedrin. The Pharisees are worried, so they convene this meeting of the ruling council to try to figure out what to do. This is completely new. As if Jesus feeding 5,000 and then 4,000 wasn't enough. As if Jesus healing people wasn't enough. As, as if Jesus giving sight to a man that had been born blind and a man who had been lame for 30-some years. As if that wasn't enough, now he's raising people from the dead. And they're concerned. So they ask, what are we to do? This man performs many signs. If we let him go on like this, Everyone is going to believe in him, and the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. These men are motivated primarily by fear. They're afraid that the Romans would come and take away their power. The Romans, wherever they went, they would leave, leave puppet kings in place and they would allow the, the rulers to have some measure of authority. And these men were worried that they would lose what little power they had. It's political expediency. It's like Stephen Harper refusing to deal with the Holocaust of abortion in our country because he doesn't want to lose his position. The Sanhedrin, these men were afraid that the Romans were going to crush Israel. Now that wouldn't happen for another 40 years. But their political manipulation couldn't change a thing. 
And by acting here in fear and submission to the Romans, they're actually being disobedient to the God that they supposedly represented. And we often make decisions out of fear, don't we? We don't want to lose our position or our job or respect from friends. We want to keep the peace no matter what the cost. So we'll be, we sweet to people to their face, but gossip about them behind their backs. Why? Well, there's several possible reasons to this, but I believe that one of the, the key reasons is fear of man. Jesus says in Matthew 10, 28, Do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. And the, con- the context of this is the proclamation of truth. Verse 27 reads, What I tell you in the dark, say in the light, what you hear whispered, proclaim on the housetops. But we're too afraid of what people are going to do to us. So we, we, we don't testify of who God is. We don't serve God as we're called to. May the Lord destroy that in our midst. Maybe, maybe we become so motivated by love for God and love for people that we will testify of Jesus from the rooftops with zero fear of what people can do to us. Because just like Jesus had a mission to accomplish and could not be crucified until his time had come, so we also have a job to do. We have an allotted time to do it in. And nothing can happen to us apart from God's sovereign will. But here, even in the midst of this disobedience, we see one man that seems to get it. Although it's against his will, and although he didn't understand what he was saying, Caiaphas, the high priest for that year, speaks up and says, you know nothing at all. Nor do you not understand that it's better for you that one man should die for the people rather than the whole nation should perish. So again, motivated by political expediency, Caiaphas thinks that it's better for Jesus to die than for them all to suffer. Now, I find this amazing. I find this parallel to to King Saul stripping off his clothes and prophesying in 1 Samuel 19. Or the Lord speaking to Balaam in Numbers 22. Here we have this wicked man prophesying in the power of the Holy Spirit. So John tells us that Caiaphas prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation and to gather together all the children of God from every tribe and tongue and nation. Without his knowledge and against his will, the same one who interrogates Jesus in John 18 actually proclaims the gospel. And now they begin to actively plot the death of Jesus. And aware of this, Jesus withdraws to Ephraim about 20 kilometers from Jerusalem, far enough to avoid conflict until the proper time, but close enough for the events of the coming week to take place at the appointed time. And John tells us that it was the time of the Passover. The Passover is approaching. He's giving us a time stamp. Just as he has focused in previous chapters on the Feast of Tabernacles and the Feast of Dedication, he now directs our attention to the Feast of Passover. Something is building, something is brewing, something infinitely more powerful even than what Jesus did at those feasts. Jerusalem is is full of pilgrims and the people wonder, is Jesus going to show up? Is he going to come here for the Passover? The Sanhedrin had given orders that that any information about Jesus' whereabouts would be given to them so that they could arrest him. It's as, as though they had wanted posters of him. They wanted him dead or alive, but preferably dead. But then with chapter 12, the scene shifts again dramatically. This time we see devotion in verses 1 to 3. 
It's now only six days before the Passover, and Jesus is in Bethany. He's now right on the doorstep of Jerusalem, only about three kilometers away. And contrasted with the vile picture that we see at the end of chapter 11 is this beautiful picture of devotion. Mary, the sister of Lazarus, is again at his feet, and she takes a a pound of, of spikenard, an expensive ointment, worth a year's wages and pours it on Jesus's feet and wipes her feet with his hair. Mary always seemed to be doing the right thing at the right time. Notice that Martha is serving again. But here Mary is sitting at, at, at Jesus's feet. Now she's seeking to bless him. This wealthy woman is taking on the role of the lowest servant. She had saved this perfume for Jesus' burial, but she wanted to bless him with it now. It's an extravagant gift. There's a tradition, I think, that a wedding ring or an engagement ring is supposed to be worth a month's wages. But this ointment was worth a year's wages. Think of a man saving to be able to give a ring to his bride. But just as much as the bride loves her ring, it's just gold and diamonds. The most precious gift that the husband can give her is himself. And Mary is showing here her devotion to Jesus. This wealthy woman who had probably many servants is using her hair to wipe his feet. Jesus himself would give an infinitely more extravagant gift in just a few days' time. He, too, would give himself. And the most extravagant gift that anyone has ever given. But even in the midst of this beautiful devotion, we're stunned by the reality of rejection. So finally, in verses 4 to 11, we see the rejection of Jesus. Verses 4 to 8, we see the rejection of Judas, and then again the chief priests in verses 9 to 11. So Judas is is indignant. Remember, this is the same word that that was used for Jesus' indignation at death. Judas, who had, had been with Jesus throughout his ministry, Judas, who had seen the miracles. Judas, who had heard the teaching. Judas, Judas who had been served by Jesus. Judas, who had been loved by Jesus. Betrays him. So he's indignant at Mary. And John tells us that, that Judas was a thief. Was in, char- was in charge of the money bag. Now, again, Jesus was omniscient. So why would he allow a thief to be in charge of the money bag? It was adding to the condemnation of Judas. But if Jesus is omniscient and chooses a thief to hold the money bag, why would he choose a betrayer? to be one of his disciples. We'll see this. It won't take, it's going to take a few months, but we're going to see this as we, as we see the actual betrayal take place. Where Judas sells Jesus out for 30 pieces of silver, the price of a slave. And even as he's indignant about this, this precious gift being poured out on the floor, He himself will throw out those 30 pieces of silver on the floor. And Jesus says, the poor you always have with you. The poor you always have with you. This is not an excuse for us to keep from serving the poor. But this is a mission that we'll never complete. We're always to be about 
serving the poor, but right now there is a priority. And again, Mary is doing the needful thing. And finally, in verses 9 to 11, we see that the, the rejection of Jesus by the chief priests. In verse 9, when a large crowd of Jews learned that Jesus was there, they came, not only on account of Jesus, but also to see Lazarus. I mean, this is, this is huge. This is massive. If someone were to be raised from the dead in our day, you can guarantee that it would, would draw a huge crowd. He would be, there would be all kinds of requests that he would, would speak on talk shows. People would be, would be curious. People would want to see for themselves. But look in verse 10. The chief priests made plans to put Lazarus to death. There was no question in their minds that this had taken place. They didn't believe that this was somehow an imposter, that Jesus was a fraud. They believed that Jesus had actually raised him from the dead. But in their blind unbelief, they wanted to murder Lazarus to destroy the evidence of who Jesus was. And here I believe we see their, their ultimate motivation of jealousy. Because on account of, the, of Jesus, many of the Jews, or of, of Jesus raising Lazarus, many of the Jews were going away and believing in Jesus. They were losing their power base. People were saying, well, what miracles have you performed? What have you done for us lately? But here we have someone who can actually raise somebody from the dead. And these men were afraid. These men were jealous. And so they wanted to murder Lazarus. Just as they would murder Jesus in just a few days' time. So what do we make of all this? How do you understand this, this text? What does this have to do with us? Of course, we, we believe that we, if, with the eyes of faith, you believe that Jesus did this. You believe that Jesus really did raise Lazarus from the dead. But all of these things, as I said from the outset, all of these things point to something infinitely more profound. Even as, as the, the resurrection of Lazarus was sort of a, of a, a first fruits of victory over death, Jesus had the power to lay down his life, his own life, and the power to take it up again. So he gives up his life on the cross. And then three days later, he's raised from the grave. But so many people don't understand what Jesus is doing. It's so easy to get bogged down in our circumstances that we forget the gospel. It's so easy to get bogged down in the trials of life that we forget that it's all about Jesus and the cross. We get so distracted by the baubles of this world that we seek treasures here rather than Christ himself as our supreme treasure. And so many Christians don't understand what Jesus is doing in the midst of their circumstances. Whether it's, it's material blessings or whether it's trials, people fail to see what Jesus is doing. When trials come, we often respond like Mary and Martha with a questioning faith. We don't understand why Jesus doesn't deliver us immediately from our trials. We profess, we profess belief that Jesus is sovereign and loving and wise. 
but then we exhibit fear and anxiety and depression and anger and attempts at control and a host of sinful responses. And these all betray a lack of faith. Beloved, questioning faith is a contradiction. But it's because of that contradiction, the very reason for the trials in our lives is because of that contradiction. Jesus does it just like he did for Mary and Martha and his disciples and Lazarus and the Jews who believed. Jesus does these things so that we will believe, so that we'll see his hand move powerfully, not delivering us from our trials, but delivering us through our trials. So we have this testimony of what Jesus did here to show us what he is doing in the lives of his children. Fellow Christians, don't misjudge the story by looking at the trials. Look at Jesus. Look at Jesus. See your part in this story of what Jesus has done for you. Consider how your story ends. Only then will you be able to see your life through the eyes of faith. Now, this miracle of Jesus raising Lazarus from the dead has been called the greatest of the miracles that Jesus ever did during his incarnation. But have you ever considered, fellow Christian, have you ever considered that the miracle that God did in you is far greater? Jesus hasn't just, in your case, given life to a dead heart. He's taken out from you the heart of stone and given you a heart of faith. He has taken out of you a, a heart that was bent on disobedience, a heart that was bent on rejection, and has given you a heart of love for him, a heart that wants to obey him. C.H. Spurgeon said that the sinner is, is dead in sin. He's not only dead in sin, but without any power whatever to give himself the grace of life. Nay, he is not only dead, but he is corrupt. His lusts like the worms have crept into him. A foul stench riseth up to the nostrils of justice. God abhorreth him, and justice crieth, Bury the dead out of my sight. Cast it into the fire, let it be consumed. But sovereign mercy comes. And there lies this unconscious, lifeless mass of sin. Sovereign grace cries either by the minister or else directly without any agency by the Spirit of God, come forth and that man lives. Does he contribute anything to his new life? Not he. His life is given solely by God. He was dead, absolutely dead, rotten in his sin. The life is given when the call comes, and in obedience to the call, the sinner comes forth from the grave of his lust, begins to live a new life, even the life eternal, which Christ gives to his sheep. Beloved, we were like Lazarus. We were dead, but we were far more dead than Lazarus. And the stink of our death smells infinitely worse, smelled infinitely worse than even a man who had been dead in a cave for four days. Because the stink of our death was the death of rebellion against a holy God. Please turn your Bibles to Ephesians 2.1. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins. This is the pronouncement. You were dead in our, we were dead in our trespasses and sins. We were following Satan. We were by nature the children of wrath. By nature, the children of wrath. But look at verse 4. But God. 
Think about that. But God, but God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. Beloved, we were dead. We were deader than Lazarus, but God. But God, these are the things to which this points. To Christ's death and resurrection and to the life that we can have in him. He is the resurrection and the life. So now think about the circumstances that you're currently facing. Think about the trials of your life. Are you being beaten down by besetting sin? But God. Are you in the middle of extreme personal conflict? But God. Are you facing financial woes? But God. Brothers and sisters, God has made us alive in Christ to demonstrate the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. What could our temporal circumstances possibly do? What could they possibly do to shake us? If this is our God. Beloved, the trials that you are facing currently are ordained by God. Ordained by God. So that you will believe and others will see. By God's grace, may we all believe and may our lives bear testimony bear testimony to the life that we have in Christ. Let's pray together.